0: If you've ever wondered what it's like riding behind the peloton in the world's biggest cycling race, this episode is for you. I'll talk with a reporter who does the motor reports for NBC on the Tour de France. We'll also talk about what qualities some of the best American alpine skiers share and how he uses his experience to enhance NBC's ski coverage during the Olympics. Next on Sports in the Making. Thank you for joining me on Sports in the Making, a podcast where we find out what people in the sports and sports broadcasting industry do, how they've made an impact in the sports world, and how it all comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is episode number 22. Well, the Alpine ski season ended abruptly because of COVID-19 earlier this year, and the world's most prestigious cycling race, the Tour de France, has been delayed until later in 2020. But fortunately, I had the pleasure of talking with one of my friends and colleagues who works on both of those sporting events. His name is Steve Perino, and he's done quite a bit in his professional career, first as a downhill skier on the U.S. ski team, which then turned into stints as a broadcaster, first covering alpine skiing and eventually covering multiple Olympic Games with NBC, and that later turned into riding on the streets and the countryside of La Tour de France. We'll talk about all of that, plus what he does to find interesting things to report on during his broadcasts to help make the viewers' experience enjoyable, entertaining, and memorable. This is my conversation with a great guy who has a lot of humor, and he gets to be in places that many sports fans would like to be in. This is Steve Perino, announcer and reporter for NBC Sports. Okay, I'm with Steve Perino, former U.S. ski team downhill racer. He's a broadcaster as well, covering six Olympics with NBC, and he serves as their ski reporter and analyst covering the Winter Olympics since Salt Lake in 2002. And he's a commentator for NBC Sports Group's cycling coverage, including Le Tour, the Tour de France, uh, and other cycling. Thank you for joining me, Steve. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, Don, you got it. It's, it's, it's nice to be reconnected after... These this many years. Yeah. How long has it been since we were working together?
0: It's only been a couple of years, but it feels like it's almost a decade now.
1: <laughs> I know, I know.
0: All right, uh, so yeah. so first questions first. What have you been doing since the end of Alpine was canceled because of COVID, and and how have you been handling COVID?
1: Yard work done. My <laughs> yard. And I wish I wish I could just take you outside and there was visuals here because my yard is. I was gonna say on fire, but that's not quite the right impression. Um, but. He, It's it was one of those things. I live in Sun Valley, Idaho, which is, you know, it is absolutely stunning. So as far as places to be quarantined for a guy that loves the mountains and loves the streams and whatnot, this is about as nice a place as I could expect to be stuck. Um, And as you know, working in television, we don't spend enough time with our families. And so my family at this point might actually be sick of me. And that (laughs) point may have and that I may have cleared that hurdle a month ago, Um, but it's been awesome. I mean, to be apart from the fear of when am I gonna work again? And that's, I think that's true for everyone out there, right? Yeah. You want to make use of all this time that we all talk about, we never get. And yet there's that anxiety in the background, like, Ooh, geez, you know, I can't really focus on the family because, you know, when's the next paycheck coming? There's a bit of that going on. Sure. Um, But I have really been able to embrace being home because I got, you know, a daughter graduating from high school, a daughter getting into high school. I never see him enough. And then I got a four-year-old, um, who uh, boy who I try to keep him from destroying the house 24 seven. So that's full time. <laughs> and my wife's been working the whole time. So it's re- we got total role reversals going wow. on. And uh, so COVID-19 has introduced me to a whole new way of life. And for right now, I'm digging it.
0: Well, let's talk about your, your life up to this point. So you've skied your entire life from my understanding. Uh, mm-hmm. You were on the U S ski team. How was it for you to get from, you know, just being a, a young skier to the U.S. ski team?
1: You know, it, it's interesting. It's it's long enough ago that it's almost, it just was organic. Um, you know, you have these dreams as a kid of making the Olympics or making the U.S. ski team. And as a kid, you of course have no idea what that path looks like, How and you don't care. right? You just want to do your thing. And I, I had a very unusual lead up to that point where I was an elite skier in the U.S., which is to say, I lived from the age of six to fourteen outside of Chicago. I skied at a ski area that had two hundred and fifty-six vertical feet. One of my early coaches when I was six years old was Lindsey Vaughn's dad, Alan Kildow.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: yeah, and uh, but you know, it wasn't the obvious you know kid outside chicago my dad is european i had older sisters my dad grew up ski racing so it was kind of something our family did and i tagged along by the time i was 14 years old i was one of the best in the midwest and my dad got transferred to a job in new york city and so i had this choice to make and i decided that i would go to a ski academy which is not something i'd ever considered or even knew that they existed I uh, ended up going to Burke Mountain Academy, where I graduated, you know, in 1984. But at the time, you know, that was the absolute mecca of there was only three ski academies in the country. You know, so much concentration of talent went there. But I blindly ended up there. It, this wasn't like I knew I wanted to make the US ski team. And that was the obvious step, And which I think is more the case. People are more wide open, their eyes wide open today. I wasn't then. And so it was, you know, natural. And then I just, I kept getting better and evolving. And eventually uh, I found a a talent, even though I was a tiny kid for downhill. And Mm -hmm. at age 18, I made the world junior championships. And from that point on, that was when there was clarity. Like, I want to make the U.S. ski team. I want to be a downhiller. This is what I want to do. And then Two years later, I had to take some time after high school to continue my racing to make the national team, which I did, uh, and that was in 1988, so actually four years after I graduated from high school that I was named to the national team.
0: Yeah what What is it like in the talent level difference between being an amateur and being on the U.S. ski team, uh, and then competing throughout the world against all the other great skiers? Intensity.
1: Right, You know, at this, uh, the way I described it, right, I mean, obviously I had, I was lucky that I went to a school where there was such a concentration of talent, but that's relative. That was you know, U.S. talent, right? When we know right. that this is a European sport, and the concentration of talent over there is so much greater that, you know, Darren Rawls, who uh, is, you know him, but I mean, your listeners may not, but arguably the greatest speed skier ever to come out of the U S and he won the world championship, uh, super G in 2001, uh, just an absolute star, but he had the quote, right? Hundies matter. One hundredth of a second makes right. a difference in the world of Alpine skiing. And you don't begin to really, understand that until you are placed in an environment where you make an error, it costs you a tenth of a second. And rather than drop from at the at the amateur level, if you want to call it that, from first to fourth, you go from first to 20th. Yeah. And so you reinterpret what that tenth means. Because it's you know going from first to 20th is failure. Going from first, you know, to fourth, it's like, oh damn you know, bad luck. Yeah. And so you, <laughs> it's no longer bad luck. It is, you know, these moments become catastrophic. and It causes you to focus in, um, on the tents and as Darren, so, uh, eloquently put it Hundies yeah. because they matter. They are the difference. And so that to me is the difference of operating at an amateur level where, you know, your talent can still land you on the podium, But really you are sloppy in in how you did it and how you did everything leading up to that from your training to your racing, to your preparation, et cetera.
0: Right. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here because you did mention Hundy's Matter, which I've heard you say on some of the broadcasts we've worked on together. And you are a downhiller. Explain briefly, if you can, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with skiing, what the differences are between slalom, giant slalom, super G, And downhill and what's the mentality that each one has to bring to be successful
1: to give it to give it a one-liner i'm going to go quote one of america's great and most recognized names and that is bill johnson bill johnson 1984 olympic gold medal beat all the europeans at a time when the americans had no presence uh, at the elite level um, on the men's side and um he said that uh Slalom and giant slalom are events. Downhill's a cult. (laughs) and So that, you know, there's a, there is, if you live within the walls of alpine skiing, a real mentality difference between a technical skier and a speed skier. And so the technical disciplines are slalom and giant slalom. The speed disciplines are downhill and super G. And to kind of go in order of highest speed to lowest speed downhill its origins really are who can get from the top of the mountain to the bottom fastest and over time right that's evolved to control gates and you're obviously the equipment everything has improved so much if you just let people go from top to bottom they'd all be dead we'd all be dead I wouldn't be having this conversation so right. but it is the highest speed you know speeds to Obviously, you know, exceeding 80 miles an hour, and in some very rare cases, over 100 miles an hour, that's, that's downhill. And it's really kind of mastering terrain and the mountain. It's a little bit more associated with what we would call free skiing or extreme skiing. Super G is, a, is the most modern iteration of the, of the ski events. Uh, and that came out in the early 80s. And it was really to balance out. If you're a speed skier, you only had one discipline, downhill. So they added Super G, which is really just eliminated the straight sections and super high speeds of downhill. But it kept all the elements of speed and danger. Um, And what it did take out was in downhill, you get to run the course ahead of time in the days leading up to it. So you had training runs. Super G was 90 minutes of inspection, go. So it actually makes it as dangerous or more dangerous than downhill. Mm -hmm. Those are the speed events slalom uh, you know that's slalom and downhill are the original events of alpine skiing dating back to the you know 1930s and then giant slalom came in later so giant slalom and people may if they followed any level of olympic skiing is that's the home of one ted ligety and we often refer to giant slalom as the art of skiing because you can't just be athletic you can't just be brave you have to have everything dialed in. And if you're having a bad week in Giant Slalom and you're the best skier in the world, you cannot just overcome by mentally putting yourself in this competitive state. Everything just needs to be so finely tuned. So that's, you know, Giant Slalom is the cornerstone of all skiing. Um, And it's, you know, average speeds in Giant Slalom are kind of 35 to 45 miles an hour. It's still quite high speed. And then there's Slalom, which is, um you know those are the quickest turns uh and that is you know we typically associate slalom like in track and field it would be the sprinting it's it's youth and bravado right Mm -hmm. there's no old i mean there are a handful of sprinters that are old but generally speaking it's kind of the home of the the young and and quick uh but quickness explosivity that is the cornerstone of slalom skiing and you know that's kind of 25 to 35 miles an hour and you ski right over the top of the gates. And these days, right, everyone's got armor on them so they can smash the plastic, but (laughs) that is, that is sort of from fastest to slowest, but Solomon giant slalom, very technical um, much more so than the speed events, which I shouldn't say aren't technical, but there is a screw needs to be a little bit loose and there has to be an appetite for fear and speed uh, in those disciplines in a way that you don't really have it in slalom and giant slalom. Right. And that's what Bill Johnson would call the cult, the cult of speed.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned Bill Johnson, um, you've seen and covered some of the best skiers in history from the American side, Bodie Miller, you mentioned Ted Ligety, uh, Lindsey Vaughn, and now Michaela Schifrin. Um, so having been a skier, what makes them stand out from other skiers that you've seen or covered?
1: Well, you know, different, you've got a whole bunch of very different characters in there that have all made it to to greatness. And I think maybe that's one thing that is a staple of American stars is that they're all very different, where I would make the argument that a lot of the dominance that we saw over the history of alpine skiing in Switzerland and Austria, those are the power nations you can see similarities in their stars, right? They had a model to follow. Um, There was, again, they had that density of competition. So they all kind of, in some ways, mirrored each other much more so than Americans do. When we are spread out across this very large country. You don't get to see other people ski growing up. That may be great. And so you tend to be, and, and Bodie Miller is this, that the quintessential American in that he kind of invented everything as he went, which is what made him so great. Interesting. Um, I mean, Bodie Miller, maybe more than anything, was an innovator. And I mean, everyone who reaches the heights of their sport is an innovator of sort. But Bodie was unique among those innovators. Uh, You know, when skiing is very technologically um, dependent, you know, if your skis aren't right, you know, you can't win. You just can't. And right. so there's the evolution of ski equipment over time has changed to whereby, you know, a 13-year-old kid could go back to the 1980 Olympics and win. No question with today's equipment. Wow. No question. You know, maybe a 10-year-old. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> – <I>, I'm, <a, laughs> uh, I'm guessing here, but you get my point. Sure. And Bodie was at the front end of, of, you know, what we now call shaped skis, skis that, you know, aren't these just straight slats that you had to reef on to make turns. And he was handed these skis that were more for recreational skiers to make it easier for recreational skiers to use. And he's like, I, you know, these are so easy. Why, why would I use these race skis? And of course that was anathema to all of certainly Europe, right? You just, you don't ski on tourist skis. It was just beneath everyone. And he's like, yeah, you go, you do you, I'll do me. And then he just, (laughs) (laughs) and then he just took these skis uh, and, you know, at a junior level, destroyed everybody. And then he went to the World Cup level and he was kind of at the front end of just taking on all these, you know, the, the, the new shape ski, um, just looking at things very differently. He was just constantly doing things differently. It cost him a lot of victories. He only won 33 races. You know, had he done things maybe a little bit more by the book, that number would be much higher but some of the victories that he did have are so memorable because he killed people by so much.
0: Yeah,
1: um, That's the innovator he was. And he never, de- he never departed from that. So anyway, you know, in another way he evolved is because he became a little bit more withdrawn, uh, you know, much more of a maverick when he, I can remember 2002 Olympic games, you know, I'd be up in the start, easy to chat with at the Olympics, chat, chat, chat. And that's where he won two silver medals. You know, he was on Leno. He was a huge star. And then you go to 2006, right? He is more than any other Olympic athlete, winner Olympic athlete in 2006. He's expected to be America's star, if not the Olympics star. Um, and of course he didn't win anything. And he was maligned for being out late and partying. And, you know, and now I had to chase the guy down to talk to him. And of course, you can understand why he wouldn't want to sure. talk to me. I'm not sure I really wanted to talk to him either, you know, but that was, uh, you know, there's footage of me chasing him down the street, which is my least, as you know, Don, this is not what <laughs> yes. I like to do. But that was that was the mandate to escaped the finish line after, you know, failing to win any medals. And this was it. And they had a it wasn't a drone, but it was this plane that flew over the valley in Italy to where when they pulled back. I mean, you could see France, hundreds of miles in in either direction. And it also had the ability to zoom in and they found Bodie (laughs) with the camera. (laughs) And so I'm getting directions on where he is as I'm chasing him. You know, it's like an FBI hit kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And so, you you know, that was kind of that was Bodie Miller in just four years of becoming so famous that everyone in the world wanted to talk to him. And he became overwhelmed, right? And yeah. that was when uh so anyway, that's that's Bodhi. That's a long story, but that's that's there's a lot more to Bodhi, but those are two kind of bookends for me that really sort of describe this evolution of the character.
0: Yeah, and then and then as you know, as far as Lindsay Vaughn, her, her career's wrapped up, but she's she was kind of a pioneer in her own in her own right as well.
1: Absolutely, you know, she and, and what she did Bodhi was was supremely gifted his, his coordination, his ability to look at something and two minutes later be able to do it. And then also he was never one to copy other people. He would borrow and then say, well, that's stupid. Why don't you do it like this? <laughs> and he could evolve, you know, technically and do these things in very short order. So his ability is like, his athletic IQ is Einstein-like, right? Yeah. That's that's where I put him. Vaughn is all about grit. And she is the one that took certainly women's alpine racing and said, This is this is what hard work looks like. And it would go eight, you know, eight hours a day, she'd be working out. So Lindsay Vaughn was not the most, she wasn't untalented, but that's not why she went on to be the winningest skier of all time. It was her ability to, A, work harder than everyone at that time, and B, her ability to swallow fear and race at her limit every time she got in the gate is like nobody I've ever seen, male or female, because she crashed more than anyone. And when you crash in downhill, and it certainly happened to me, you're gun-shy for a long time if not forever and she destroyed her body and you know apart from her ability to work hard to get the bones and ligaments back intact she got her mind back and back uh, in that fearless space that you need to be in faster than anybody in the history of sport and that is why she is so special to me just absolutely fearless and we saw that you know you talk about 2006 I was standing right there during the training run where maybe people don't remember this, but she took this horrific crash and got hauled off in a helicopter. And that's when Peekaboo Street went to visit her in the hospital and said, You know, you can do this. But she destroyed herself uh, and then came back, not to win, but I want to say she was eighth place or something. Everyone else would have been going home. Uh, And she, you know, she's tough 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 um and so you know and then four years later right goes on to win that gold medal that she, that uh she would say escaped her in 2006
0: right well and just thinking of her in europe and the way we covered it the europeans i mean she was a star attraction in europe as well and there's plenty of skiers over there i mean she's got a a a practical region named for her in Canada with Lake, Lake Lindsay, which is what Lake Louise. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah it's, it's, I mean, I forget what the natural, the number is 16 or 18 victories at one venue. It's unprecedented you know, yeah. really in the sport. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, as you said, in, in Europe, Uh, you know, both she and Bodie and certainly Schifrin, you know, all the Americans are more popular in Europe than they are at home. And that's even the true of Vaughn who has obviously elevated way outside the sphere of Alpine racing. And, you know, she's a regular in sort of the, the TMZs and the people magazines, you know, that's, that's, but even with that, you know, Bodie Miller had a t-shirt once and it said, I'm big in Europe, which I was enjoyed, Uh, (laughs) but you know, that's true of, Vaughn, they, they can't walk around in most places in Europe without being recognized, right. and they can in the U.S., and that's even true of Schiffer.
0: Right. Well, and you know, you talk about Bodie and Ted Ligeti and Lindsay. you know, they kind of came before Michaela Schiffer, and so do you think Michaela, with her success and, and, you know, her marketability can perhaps change that here in the U.S.? I mean, because she seems like she's very well recognized here now as well.
1: She, yeah, she is. Uh, in, I think like all sports, you need your star. And that's particularly true of fringe sports. And I certainly would put alpine skiing in the fringe sport category in the U.S. I mean, there's no right. question about it. And, uh, you know, our our landscape is, I and mean, I won't be a realist about this, our landscape is cluttered. I mean, we have, you know, even look at... Right. You know the nba without i just watched um the last dance mm-hmm. right and you, you remember i because i was a chicago kid at the time when the bulls were on fire and I, you know i really like basketball i don't like playing basketball it does nothing for me but i was absolutely glued to the tv when jordan played you know and so even a sport an important sport in our country baseball basketball football you see these ebbs and flows based on the stars of the time. And certainly basketball was at this crescendo and without our stars, we lose traction. And, and, uh, you know, I think Schifrin can do something for Alpine skiing, but to say that, you know, Schifrin's going to put it right, you know, up next to any of the ball and stick sports that that were, that are on network primetime is unrealistic. That's true. Um, but, Will she cause people to pay attention outside of the Olympic cycle? Yeah. Yeah. We see that. We see that. And you see that now that there's a World Cup race in Killington, Vermont, which is, you know, that's pretty close to an urban center. You know, I want to say there's 90 million people within. uh, There's a stat that they Killington itself puts out, but there's 90 million people within three hours of Killington. So you can go there for the day. uh, Maybe. (laughs) Uh, that place is packed and Don, I'll tell you this, it is the best attended women's race on the world cup and in the top 10%, 20% of men's races. So, you know, part of that is there haven't been races in the East, but most of that is Michaela Schifrin. Yeah. She gets credit for that.
0: Yeah. All right. uh, Shifting gears here a little bit, um, you know, I've worked with you many times while at Universal Sports slash NBC Sports slash Olympic Channel in the dead of night, sometimes 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you know, 4 a.m. How did you get into broadcasting and and how have you been able to at least help transform Alpine coverage for United States uh, viewers? I was getting
1: way too much sleep. And uh, said, I said, I'm going to need a job where I don't ever sleep again. <laughs> and that was, it was perfect. I haven't slept in 20 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I think as, as a racer, you you know so much more about the nuances of everything that's going on in your sport. And, it, you know, part of that is sort of an ignorance and an arrogance kind of mixed together because <laughs> you don't realize how hard it is to broadcast until you try doing it yourself. Uh-huh. But in my time, also, there was very little coverage of alpine skiing. Uh, you know, it, was, it might be eight races a year. And so wh- why I thought, and I kind of backed in to broadcasting, to be honest with you, uh, you know, part of me thought... I could do this and I've got so much to say because it's so much, you know, I just had so much to say because I was in it. That was my thing. Sure. So I wanted to impart that, which I did not think was being imparted at the time. Um, and, you know, it's kind of really just get behind the scenes, tell the stories, try to explain why ski racing is so hard because visually I think to people that don't do it, it it just looks like people sliding down the mountain. So there was trying to bring some respect to the athleticism of the sport. So those were the things that drove me. And basically, I'm a social cat and I like to BS with people. I like to BS about my sport. Like that's what I like to do. And I recognize that. And so I wanted to tell all these great, funny stories that, we experienced when we were on the road um and so that's kind of the engine that drove me um but really i had no plan on how to do that it wasn't like so many of the my colleagues that i work with now who you know at a very young age they wanted to be broadcasters they knew it you know they worked for right. the high school radio and all that i didn't do that i didn't know that you could um I just, uh, when I went to college, I thought I'll study journalism because I enjoy the art of storytelling and communing with people. That simple. I didn't like the idea of doing one thing, uh, you know, drilling down on one thing for the rest of my life because I'd already done that. Uh, And then um, one of my colleagues and close friends and great mentors, Todd Brooker, who was the broadcaster, uh, the analyst at the time for ESPN, had to open a Uh, he was opening a Wendy's and in order to open a Wendy's, you have to go to burger college again, stuff I didn't know. (laughs) So he couldn't broadcast for three months. So because Todd Brooker had to go to burger college, they had an audition for some other people, uh, to fill in for him. They threw my name in the hat. I went and did the audition. I got the job. That's how it started back in 1997. So I owe my start Todd Brooker's brief hiatus. And then I got to go work with him for many years. Um, so that's how it started. And then in terms of you know why, what I wanted to change or, or bring to it was back to what I said at the beginning, just really try to drill down on um, the nuances of the sport in a way that's understandable to everybody. So don't dumb it down. Don't just be general about your sport. Pick up these little tiny nuggets, which are so important to the sport, and then pull back and try to explain that to because people aren't dumb. They just don't have the background. Right. So if you give it a little time, people can understand what you're saying and, and, and have something about the sport to sink their teeth into.
0: Well, and one of the things as a producer that I always try to relate to my team was let's let's not talk above the audience but not talk below them because if you talk above them, people are going to get lost and they're not going to understand. And if you talk below them, the, ex, the, the people who are – more savvy at the sport are going to tune you out because it's like you're 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 not giving me any value and so i think that's what you do really well is is you're able to explain something in such a brief amount of time especially when they're coming down the hill to to identify maybe not necessarily on the skier that you're seeing but for the next skier or the next time they come out so how have you learned how to do that as you've progressed in your career yeah, I mean,
1: because I started out as a reporter, and I think the real challenge as, as an athlete going into the sport is that there is such a correct way to explain something. And, and in your mind, and I think it's this is common among athletes, you're so afraid of being wrong or, or underselling something that you over-explain it. You, you know, like it's it's like this – but it's, it's not like that. And it's like this, but it's not like that. And, and so you can never, you can't, you don't trust yourself. to just fill it down to one point because if you make one point and in television, you don't get five minutes to explain something like a coach might do when they're trying to explain the nuance of a turn or what someone should do. You don't have that time. So you can't go down that rabbit hole of trying to, unexplained you know don't think I mean this but do think I mean this and I know you know in five cases out of seven this is right but the other two cases are that you know you don't have that time so that's what took me a long time to get out of that mentality of I was afraid that you know the 10 people you know that were my teammates that knew this concept would say yeah dude you know you kind of butchered that (laughs) you can't worry about those people yeah you're trying to explain it in a manner that provides some illumination for the people. And so it took me many, many years to unclutter my thoughts and just distill it down to, and be okay with being mostly right. You know, just, and I don't mean to say like inaccurate telling lies. I just mean just not to defend yourself on television. Like you've been put up on the stand and that's, you know, I spent five years doing that. And when I was a reporter, uh, you know, I would do stand-ups and I would do it. Like, it took me 10 takes to do anything because I was – I had to say it exactly how I wanted to say it so it's not that, to be wrong. This fear of being wrong really yeah. tangles you up. And now, now Don, I don't give a shit if I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, I've been liberated.
0: No. But you're you honest. I mean, if, if you're honest and true, you don't have to, anything to worry about, is, as they say. So – uh, you know, and that's what I kind of liked. Now, with, with Olympics, y- you still act in the reporter role. And, you know, at least from P- Pyeongchang is where I remember seeing, you know, some of your, your reports. And I don't remember the specifics, but I do remember they were very creative on how you approached, uh, you know, what you were doing. What do you think about when you're covering the Olympics versus just a World Cup?
1: I try not to. I, I'm a little tone deaf with the audience because back to what I was saying before, I want to take something, I don't mean to say complex, but that's really important to the sport. And then just pull back enough so that most people can understand what I'm saying. So I've given them a nugget that can, you know, move them forward with their understanding of the sport, but I haven't like just some said some platitude to fill time. And so in some ways you know I play all the roles and I you know I do play by play and I do analyst and then reporter as well and I do like being able to shift around and when I'm the reporter particularly at the Olympics you know you you have more resources to do things and every day I would right. get to sort of impart this little nugget you know and one for example in in speed skiing the coaches as you know will climb trees because When someone's going 90 miles an hour and you're down in a hollow, you only get to see him for, you know, two tenths of a second, right? And the coach is trying to absorb this. So they'll climb 30, 40, 50, 80 feet up into a tree to give themselves a view, right? And just that right there, just doing it without saying anything. This guy's up in the tree because otherwise he's only going to see his athlete for two seconds. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They're going that fast. Oh, right. Uh, you know, how do you coach this thing? So the coach needs to be a tree climber. <laughs> you know, just that. I haven't said anything. I've just gone there. And so that's what I did in, in Sochi is I, I climbed a tree and I interviewed the coach who was 80 feet up in the tree for 30 seconds. What are you doing up here? And you just happened to be in the one turn where, you know, Bodhi kept boning it. Like he was killing everyone in training. And then this one turn and we were just right above it. And so you have now told a story about ski racing and what is required of the sport and the coaches. And then you've brought it, you've narrowed it down to this turn here is the difference between Bodie Miller getting that gold medal um, in 2014 when people think he's past his prime and not. And so you've made it relevant to the race and yet you've told a bigger a bigger story. And 30 seconds have expired and we're done. Even if it took me half an hour to get up that goddamn tree.
0: And that's great stuff. I mean, and, and, you know, just having gotten to know you, you are a creative person. You have a, a great sense of humor. And so when you can package all that up into a tree report, <laughs> it makes the viewing experience more enjoyable.
1: Yeah. And it's more fun to do the job, right? I mean, if that's the thing, is if, if the job becomes boring, you become boring. And, right, there's that knock on effect. Yeah. It's the old. Confucius saying, if you love your job, you'll never work another day in your life.
0: That's true. That's true. All right. So for cycling fans out there, uh, they may recognize you as the guy on the moto following the Peloton during the tour de France. Uh, you know, if they watch the uh, tour of California as well, I'm sure they see you there in that capacity as well. So how did you get into that? And what does that job entail?
1: That was an interesting one is that, you know, at the, at the point in my career, pre-cycling, I was really just doing winter work. I had younger kids. I just it didn't work to be working year round. So I'd never pursued anything in the summer. And there was part of my personal evolution where I really was uncomfortable doing television in an arena that I wasn't an expert in. I know I had already been doing television for 10 years and I I didn't I still didn't think of myself as a television person Uh, and so it was very hard for me to think about taking on a sport that I wasn't an expert in and then being a guy on television that had to talk about it so I was at that point in my career where I thought all right I can take on something else because I didn't grow up a cyclist you know and I watched it I was certainly no not an avid cycle you know uh, bike racing fan at that time I just knew that now was my time I was working for. David Michaels, who was our boss for many years at Universal Sports, which became the Olympic Channel, which is now part of NBC. And um, he, he was the producer of the Tour de France. And I knew there was a job opening. And you know, I, I made an appeal to him. I said, I, you know, I don't know cycling inside and out, but I am an outdoor cat. Like, that's where I I don't love the studio. I like being outdoors and mixing it up with people. And there was a familiarity with Alpine skiing and cycling were similar, uh, and they were you know similar reporters. I, I knew where to go to get the information uh, that I needed to be conversant in cycling, uh, and so I, I made the appeal. He made me send him. I had to like write a little essay for him why I could do this job, uh, and so he gave me a shot. Um, and that was two, That was for the, That was in two thousand eleven for two thousand twelve. And uh, boy, steep, steep, steep learning curve. It's so, so nuanced. Oh. Um, and, you know, I have, I think like all sports, right? You, if you don't really, if they don't appeal to you at first and you kind of look at them, and are like, eh, you know, kind of boring. I don't really, I don't really see the appeal to this. I don't really see, I can't appreciate the skills required. Why would a guy want to bike that long for that far? You know, seems boring. Sure. and That guy must be boring because he's super repetitive. And then I got out there, some of these mountain passes. And I thought, you know, as a downhiller, I thought me and cyclists lived on opposite ends of the gym, right? They liked repetition and endurance and killing themselves. I like to take a chairlift to eliminate the, the endurance work for two minutes and go as fast as I could. Yeah. And, uh, and then when I watch these guys on the it's just like, it's insanity. So I have a whole new respect for them. Um, but yeah, it was so after my first year at the tour, which by the way, was my first bike race. So wow. talk about going right, you know, into the fire. And it was really hard. I just, I didn't understand the language. I could ask questions, people would answer. And I would be like, I have no idea what you said. I have no way to follow that because I don't even understand your answer. So that was unnerving as much studying as I did. Um, but I was start, you have to go through that, Sure. Right? You have to go through that. Uh, and the tour is a great way to do it because you do it for 21 days straight. And so over time, I started to understand it. And then, uh, Sam flood, who's the president of NBC sports came along and, uh, he always comes to the last couple of days of the tour. And he said, I got an idea. How about we stick you on the back of a motorcycle? to report from inside the race and that's just you know you're talking to the guy that likes to climb the tree i was like put me on Oh yeah, every day of the week that is so me um and so that's kind of that's he asked i said yes before he finished his question uh and that's how that whole thing started um so and it, it's it is a long 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 three weeks uh but as work goes it's
0: awesome. Well, and you mentioned how you got into this without having the experience, and I think, you know, having been in a position where I've been able to hire talent, I I, I don't think um, maybe viewers understand. Sometimes it's about the ability to get the job done, and not necessarily the expertise that you have. Now, if if there's not any progress in the subsequent years following, then of course there needs to be an adjustment made. But but if you have the ability to get the the right answers and, and ask the right questions and and perform the job that is something you can grow into and it's sometimes doesn't always seem fair but it it, it makes sense from a from a um, content delivery perspective and so when I hear you say that it, it was a steep learning curve y- you were able to do it and you've been doing it for how, how long has it been now five six years
1: well it'll you know 2012 is my first one and given that this one does happen that will be my, I'm
0: losing track. Is it it's eight, eight or nine? Eight,
1: eight yeah. or nine. No one asked me to do math.
0: <laughs> yeah. So about so almost ten, almost ten years. So now, when you're in this role on the Moto, what is what does your day look like? Starting from the meetings that you have each day, uh, to the start of the race, during the race, and then after the race. It, it's kind of like
1: this dead sprint um, every day. The job is, um, it, it's, it's 80% logistics, 20% work. But, you know, it's a little different in the opening stages because we've actually been in the same hotel for three or four nights as we prepped and do interviews with various teams and just go out to the different press conferences and try and just load up your, your satchel of information that you hopefully just spread out over the course of the broadcast, um, which is 21 days. But on a daily basis, once we get going... It's, you know, we've driven, I'm on the, what they call the, I'm on the start line team. The guys, for those who follow cycling and know, you know, the name Phil Liggett, Paul Sherwin, Chris Turner, Vanneville, Paul Burmeister, that are in the studio, they're all at the finish line. That's where most people are. Um, Once the race gets going, because at the beginning we're, we are all as a team, and that's been in the past 70 people right, that NBC brings to France. Um, You know, we're off getting information. We're we're basically, it starts this year in Nice. We'll have been in Nice five days before the tour kicks off. Then when it kicks off, you've got the start line team, which are all the faces that people have known forever in cycling, Phil Liggett, Bob Roll, Christian Vandeveld, Paul Burmeister, now Chris Horner. That's our uh, finish line team. I'm on the start line team. So when they're done every day and they do their wrap ups and they do the post game or whatever, as soon as they're done, they drive all the way to the next finish line. So the end of their day is long and it sucks. Their mornings are more leisurely. We wrap up the, 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 the stage before and we go to the proximity of the next start line, which is obviously tends to be closer uh, to the previous finish line. Um, and so. The producer then of the show and our start line producer, they connoiter at night. And then in the the next morning, we get, you know, a lot of stuff is done by email because everyone's running and gunning. And then we will go to the start line and we meet in the village. And the village is this very um, festive place where they have all the food from the region and all the little clowns and this this whole theater that goes on there for the public. And we meet there and we go over our plan and we talk about the different people we're going to interview. Steve Schlanger is the interview master. So he runs around at 200 miles an hour, interviews everybody. And because my role is on the motorcycle, I'm out more shopping for stories and conversations. So I will do one or two interviews that are at known times. And the rest of the time I'm literally running back and forth just trying to find directors or someone else I know that's got us, you know, some information that I need for that day. And I everyone is engaged in conversations. So I'm just pinging back and forth, trying to find someone who's not engaged in conversation and then just suck all the information out of them relevant, relevant to that day. And I've got my little notebook and I'm writing it all down, writing it all down. So I'm trying to get as much info that might be related to what a team did yesterday, how it might play into today. And I'm trying to hit as many teams as I can that are relevant, that I think are relevant for that day's stage. And so when I get on the motorcycle, I'm loaded up with a few stories to tell. And then the race takes on a life of its own. And my job is to add to the conversation that's going on. So I don't come in out of the blue and say, I know you guys are talking about this, but I want to tell you about this. I'm always listening to when they stumble upon something that I know more about. Yeah, And I say into my mic, to my producer, I can add. Either they get me in or they don't. Um, and then when they start asking, and then as the race starts to progress and usually the fun end of the race, not always that interesting. And then it gets more interesting as it, the stage moves on, I'm listening to them and they will bring up a question. And then I try to go to that team car to get to the answer to that question. Not that they haven't asked me to go do it. I just know that they don't have the complete story and I'm trying to finish it off. So that's how I use my motorcycle. and and that's. Kind of that's my role. Uh, apart from just to observe what's happening, and there's a crash every ten seconds, so there's plenty to see. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, race to the finish line, and sometimes I'll do some finish line interviews and whatnot. Still in my moto outfits, it's hundred degrees out, I'm dying. I haven't eaten all day, and then we're wrapped up typically around six. Uh, that's when I have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, as you know, Steve Schlanger, world's most impatient person, all he can think about is logistics and how we're getting to the next hotel. So that job is done for me. Uh, I just get into the car with Schlanger. I prefer to drive and have him navigate, uh, but sometimes he'll just be there with the engine revved. Uh, car's already moving. I jump in and we go <laughs> for that hotel um, You know, and try to get to the hotel before dinner shuts down, um, take a shower and go to sleep. So that's, and, you know, and so that's every day, I, you know, maybe I've driven as much as an hour to get to the start line. Then I've spent six hours on the back of the motorcycle and then an hour or maybe two to get to the next hotel when the day's done. So yeah. it's just, it's mostly logistics right. and you're trying to do things as efficiently. And we do not mind the speed limit very well, because you're just trying to get any semblance of downtime that you can to just, rest your thoughts okay. <laughs> and be human. It's a long, long three weeks.
0: How would you describe uh, what it's like being in a Peloton from your perspective? Uh, I, you know, Obviously, you can't be in the middle of it, but there are times, like you said, when there's crashes where you have no choice but to go through that. Um, so what, how would you describe for our, our listeners what it's like being behind one of the most prestigious races, if not the most prestigious cycling race in history.
1: Yeah. I mean, no question. It's the most prestigious cycling race. Uh, And the, I guess there's, there's for people that don't follow cycling, you know, the Peloton is, is the main group of riders. Obviously they don't all stay together from beginning to end. It starts to break up, but The way the race is arranged is that main group of riders behind it, there are 22 teams in the race, which means there are 22 team cars and they're all lined up and they're supposed to maintain the order of the existing general classification results from the previous day. So whoever's leading the race, their team car won on down, but there's two sets of cars. And so the second set, of once the race breaks up, that first set of cars goes ahead and the second set of cars stays behind. Uh, there are some, you know, put it this way, there are, I want to say the numbers, 24,000 police on motorci- on motorcycles, cars, et cetera, throughout the Tour de France. Not all at once, but sure. hired by the different prefectures throughout the country and so inside the peloton it's this living organism of gendarme of special forces of medical cars medical motorcycles um there are communication motorcycles and then there are a handful of people that do what i do um i want to say it's about 5 so there are a lot of vehicles in the race <clears throat> And then there's the camera bikes. The only people that are in with the riders are the camera bikes. And occasionally, the still photographers who pass through like little bees. Then they shoot forward and then they take pictures. So where I live is behind the race. And that's where the cameras are not. And what happens there is utter chaos at times. Sometimes you could fall asleep, nothing's happened. But when the race, for example, slows down and the riders come back to get talk to the director, to get more food, to get more drink, or they've all stopped on the side of the road to take a pee, a natural as they call it, then everyone cycles back through this peloton. And these are narrow roads in Europe and it is utter chaos. Once you put a little downward slope and people are going 35 to 65 miles an hour, then it gets gnarly and so we are all packed over on the left side of the road team cars are packed on the right side of the road and the service lane is the left side of the road meaning any car or team car that needs to go back into the peloton to service their guys or they got a flat or they're needed they call for permission and they come ripping up the middle fast as they can go so that space in there is not only confined it's congested with people going different speeds and riders weaving in and out, riding on bumpers. The fact that there's not more carnage in that space is beyond comprehension. And it speaks to the level of professionalism and attention that's being paid by all those pros in there. That's my motopilot. That's the drivers of those team cars, which is the other directors. And the athletes themselves, their ability to just weave through all manner of chaos on those bikes with that, you know, tire that's got a one centimeter contact patch, wow. is stunning. So you th- we think of it as the endurance athletes, but that this is it's that's an extreme sport. What's happening in that beehive is an extreme sport.
0: Yeah. Well, and and the caravan that follows, it's almost to me, at least, the way you've described it, it's almost like a competition within the the competition.
1: Oh, totally right. You know, people have different ways of. You know, there's a real advantage to when the race is on, where the road gets narrow. Uh, you want to be a, a car up front because if your if your rider has mechanical, or or you want to be right there. You know, you only car number 22 because they're really back. You know, on a congested mountain road where everything's moving slowly they're five minutes back. I don't know if that's exactly right, but they're minutes back. And you can imagine if you can't help your rider for five minutes, the the disadvantage there is. And so, you know, they're always trying to like, the car number 22 is always trying to think of a reason they need to be in the front (laughs) of the group, you know, right at the base of the climb. And everyone else in the, in the, on the road knows the game, right? So they're like, "Get the get back," you know, like that's not your spot; that's my spot. And so the, the cars are constantly shuffling, trying to be respectful for real need versus trying to work the system. Sure. And they're always doing that. Always doing that.
0: When you are are following, and, and there's a crash, do you do you have to change to be that reporter? In other words, so there's a crash, and there's a lot of you know yard sale type items on the road and stuff. And and if someone gets hurt, you know, medical staff are already there, but do you change into that reporter that needs to find out the status of them or is that left to someone else?
1: No, that's, that is me. That is me. Um, And so anytime there's an incident, any incident, it, you know, it's my reaction. You know, we, we could, we could you can do triage in a sense like something more important is happening up the road. And so we're going to take a cursory look at this, explain it and move on. But in most cases, it's you, you pull over if you can, if you are creating a hazard, there's the gendarme, they're going to wave you through and there's no negotiating that, right. That it gets awfully serious Okay. when you, you know, if people start blocking the road. Um, but when, I'm usually trying to get as much information on crashes as I can as quickly as possible. So apart from, you know, I might jump off the bike, run over there, see what's going on. But then I'm off communication, right? I can only do that for so long because they'll say, where the hell are you? Um, And then come back to the motorcycle report on that but of course i'm just like i don't know what's wrong with anyone i can just kind of give us a visual recount of what has happened and then over time i will go to the team car or even to the medical car and ask them for whatever information they will give me And, and you know sports sure uh they doctors in particular are very reluctant to pass along anything that might seem like speculation. Right. So, but there, you know, there is a, I have a relationship with the, with the medical directors at this point. And so I will ask them and they will say, I, this is what I can tell you. And that, that's it. Yeah. But I am, I am absolutely the follow-up guy because I'm the only one out there that can know uh, apart from the team tweets it out.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great information. Um, And for me, at least, you know, whenever I get a chance to watch, I I always those are the questions that I always think of. You know, how did how did he get that reporter? Where did he get that information from when he still has to continue following the Peloton? So so that's that's good information. Okay, so you mentioned uh, a couple of the people that are on the broadcast. Um, You know, a lot of people know who Phil Liggett is, uh, who's been covering cycling for decades throughout the world since the invention of the wheel. <laughs> so, so what can you tell our listeners what it's like working with him? Uh, you know, a, a, a being a historical figure in the sport.
1: Yeah. Let me put it simply. If my wife could remarry, <laughs> it would be Phil Liggett. <laughs> and I'm told her she can't remarry. I don't know if she believes it or not. Um, he just, you, Phil Liggett, what I love about Phil Ligon, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a great lesson for all broadcasters, is that he is on the air exactly who he is off the air. He is the most charming and, and charismatic guy that, I you know, that I've known. I mean, he's just, he is, I could just listen to him for hours. And as a matter of fact, I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when and it's it's a tremendous comfort for me as a reporter because when he reaches out to me and says, hey Steve, what have you got for us today?" I feel like I'm you know telling a story to to you know uh, I don't want to say my grandfather because we're not that far apart in age, but there's something sort of avuncular about the way he speaks, yeah. and he just I feel like I'm sharing a story with. Everything's going to be okay because we're just sharing stories here. Uh, and if I blow it, you know, he covers it. Um, or if I swallow a bug, which I have done on the air, and you know, so, um, there's something uh, there's, he is incredibly charming. He is just a born storyteller. Uh, the cadence to his voice, there's there's a musicality to it. Um, you know, that's, that is my, that's what I've listened to for six hours a day. And so he is just the greatest guy and everybody knows him everybody knows him right. and he's got a, he's got time for everybody and you know i'll watch him talk to someone and i'll be asking myself oh i wonder you know these people must have grown he must he must have grown up with these people yeah and that's you know come to find that he just met him in that moment that i walked past and so that's kind of how he makes everyone feel like you've right. been friends forever yeah. so yeah, I just I I think the world of of Phil Liggett.
0: Well, and I never had the opportunity to uh, to work with him, but uh, you know definitely listen to him. I did, however, have the opportunity to produce cycling with Paul Sherwin before he passed away in 2018, and he was so funny. In, in pre-production, he would tell some really corny but Ugh. funny jokes, and he just treated you like you were somebody that would he would devote his time to you regardless of who you were as well. So. How would you describe the chemistry between him and Phil when they were on the air?
1: You know, lo- losing losing Paul Sherwin, uh, you know, it's that that was that's like losing an arm. He was as much as as Phil is the the grandfather of our sport. Um, Paul Paul was he was the motivator. He was the one that kept the team together. He kept the team laughing, um, and he was, Like he couldn't go five seconds without telling a joke.
0: Yeah, it was and, so much And fun. as I was,
1: te- I was telling you, like Phil on the air and off the air, they're the same people. Paul Sherwin was the biggest smartass on planet Earth. Funny. And he had a one-liner for everything. Yep. And so he actually reigned in that guy. <laughs> you know, he almost played a bit of a straight guy to Phil on the air, which is not who he is. Yeah. I, you know, like he had, he had, uh, he was like a comic with ADD. You know, you, it was hard to hold his attention for more than about 20 seconds. He'd turn around, he'd engage someone else, and he'd launch a joke, turn around, and then just constantly going. And at the same time, absolutely engaging. Yeah. Just, and, and he, you know, he, there was a few times where Paul, you know, pulled me aside. He said, You know what? I, I can't believe you've only been covering cycling for so long because you did, you know, you, you when you reported that, he's like, That, that's inside information. Like that's fantastic. And that just meant so much to me. And so he did that with people and he pulled them aside and he was very genuine, uh, in lifting everybody up. Um, but he could definitely cut you down too. He was pretty quick with that. He was pretty quick with it. So you had to be on your feet. Um, but that, that's who he was. And, And you put Phil and Paul together. And I, I, one of the great, and the, even before I got involved in cycling, I recognized those two guys as one of the best teams in sports broadcasting ever. Yeah, together.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it was definitely one of the special moments to have you know worked alongside him uh, when he came to Denver when we were covering cycling. So you know it just. And, and you know just learning so much about the sport that I never, really never traditionally covered. I was always a stick and ball type person and you know having done Olympic sports and these uh, you know endurance type sports it, it gives me a different perspective on truly how big uh, of characters uh, and I mean that in a positive way that they are throughout the world throughout the world right because
1: yeah. because cycling they were for the longest time the broadcasters for all the English speaking countries. In the world. Yeah. So unlike, I I can't think of American broadcasters that are really known out, you know, off our shores. Yeah. They are. Like when Paul Schoen died, there was was an international uh, morning. Right. It was unbelievable. And I, I think another thing I didn't mention that is... Maybe something to aspire to is when you talk about great broadcast teams. Phil and Paul, they were inseparable. They, you know, that r- rapport they had on the air was that was who they were. Yeah, they drove together. Paul and they always, you know, they always had their British car that they drove down from the UK. So the steering wheel on the wrong side. Paul <laughs> was therefore always on the wrong side. So Paul always drove. Phil was the passenger. You know, they. In the days where they didn't have their own rooms, they shared rooms. I mean, they did. They have breakfast together. They have lunch together. They have dinner together. Everything together. Everything together. Um, those guys were closer than brothers.
0: Now, the the broadcast team currently uh, includes you, um, Phil, uh, Bob Roll, Jens Voigt. Mr. Schlanger, who you mentioned earlier, Steve Schlanger, Mm -hmm. Uh, Joel Felicio is your producer, Uh, and David Michaels, uh, I think believes I believe still directs or or oversees coordinating producer. So you've got a, a, I mean, a collection of people who have experienced cycling, cycling their entire career. Uh, What what makes NBC's coverage special for the Tour de France? Uh, you, You know,
1: I it's interesting because you know for. You've got whatever. I mean, it's a hundred years of experience there. It's a hundred years of experience. Like, I am so the rookie on that team. Slanger's. <laughs> so I've been there one year longer than Schlanger. But he's probably covered. He's covered more cycling than me. Yeah. Um, and so there, there is a passion there. And, you know, it starts with David, whose first Tour de France was like the Le Mans days on the back of the motorcycle with the pilot that I I've always had on the Tour de France Um, in, you know, I think he was on the, in 86th and then Joel Felicio, who looks like he's 10 years old, but he's been covering (laughs) the tour for 20 years, whose sole existence is to absorb information about cycling. I mean, it it is his passion. And so you've got a lot of knowledge about the sport that, and constantly pushing, constantly pushing, what can we do better? What can we do more? What haven't we done? And I talked I talked to Joel today. Um, and so he's always trying to, you know, pushing people months out, a year out. You know, he's watched the tour from last year. I don't know how many times since. What we can do better. Um, so you've got guys at the top that are pushing the people with the real knowledge. Jens Voigt, Van der Horner, Roll. Pushing those guys to dig a little bit deeper. Cause you know, that is also one of the things I've noticed working with, you know, analysts that are previously athletes is that you think you are, you, you don't have to do any more research. You're, you already know everything. Yeah. And the really good ones are the, are the ones that are trying to find out the stuff they don't know or utilizing all of their contacts to find out what's going on right now, as opposed to interpret it through your lens of history and experience, right. you know, which is only half right. Um. So the guys at the top push the guys with the knowledge to get more knowledge and be you know, continually better. Um, you know, I think, boy, going down the line, I thought Bob role, you know, he had to take on the impossible, right? He took yeah. on uh, Paul Sherwin's role. And you know, apart from how that would be interpreted, you've got the two guys with the British accents, and that's all that charm that goes along with it. There's just sort of an audio expectation of what the broadcast is going to sound like, and Bob's never going to sound like that. Um, and yet, I think Bob, to his credit, Bob is always Bob. Bob will always be Bob. I mean, he's he's super smart. Uh, obviously, he knows cycling inside and out. Um, And I thought he was better as, you know, the analyst, uh, even than he was as, you know, super entertaining, wacky guy in the studio. Mm -hmm. He really, really stepped up um, and I, and I think he was roundly applauded for his work uh, at the tour. So for Bob, you know, doing the impossible, I was super impressed, really impressed by him. Horner, uh, you know, the new guy on the team, as, as a, as a, as a writer just loved chatting, you know, so you knew he was going to, you knew he had something to say. You just didn't know if putting the cameras on him was going to make him kind of stultified. And he was not, he was, he was, you know, he was Mr. Uh, say anything, you know, and then you've got, you've got Christian on the other side who, who is, you know, everyone loves Christian and you know, Christian doesn't have like sharp edges like Horner does. So they created such a great back and forth. I love because he, you know, he drew Christian out a little bit and Christian was very quick to kind of, you know, tell Horner, well, yeah, that may be your opinion and clip his wings a little bit. So I loved watching those two guys together. And uh, cause I think Christian was better than ever with Horner in there, ruffling feathers. Yeah. Um, and then Paul Burmeister playing traffic cop. Uh and then, you know, Jens is <laughs> Jens is out there in the tent alone. Uh and just he can't open his mouth without making me laugh. <laughs> um and everyone knows Jens, right? Everybody knows Jens. So people are constantly like talking to him because he's not in the studio, he's outside and they're and he's trying to do two things at once. Um and very often like he has the ability to call up a director at any point in the race and get the information. So I maybe. Like spending 15 minutes on a mountain descent trying to get forward to the director that we very badly need this information from, and then with my mic sticking out the window, you know, at 60 miles an hour to try and get the answer, I'm like, oh, Yen's got that. He just called five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway, that's uh, that's how that goes. Right. And then Schlanger, of course, you know, Schlanger yeah. is uh, he and I've been working together forever, but there is uh. No one that can do more interviews in less time and clearly thought out interviews than Schlanger, who is a complete menace to cycling when he's in the finish line doing interviews.
0: Yeah. It's awesome to watch. And I've enjoyed working with you and Schlanger, you know, because you're you're the two that I worked with the most. So I kind of understand a little bit about both of you. Um so well, yeah, we're, we're opposites. <laughs> you are opposites but you guys, you know, work well together and and complement each other very nicely. So uh okay, couple more questions and then I'll let you go. Um what's been some of the most memorable moments that you've had while covering cycling?
1: Oh man. Um you know, I have I've been part of these you know what? Now they like these epic moments. You know, I think of crashes. I think maybe the one that's most internationally known, and I was right there in the middle of it, reacting like everyone else in the world. You know, not like the reporter. Like, what am I looking at? Uh, was Mont Ventoux when Chris Froome was leading the tour, and Ventoux is a very exposed. You know, apart from being in a legendary climb in the tour, it's a very exposed mountain. There's no, maybe a third of it's above Timberline. And so it gets wind buffeted. And it was so bad that they had to lower the start. Sorry, they had to lower the finish line. And they had to do it the day before. And all the finishes, they have the metal guardrail that, you know, that flanks the road. Usually, a few K out from the finish line, particularly in the mountains, just to keep the road open for the riders. Cause we've all seen how it compresses on the riders uh, and can become dangerous for the riders and certainly like, impact the race. Well, they didn't have time to move all those barriers down the mountain. So only one side of the road was protected. <clears throat> and then the other side of the road was pretty, you know, like it was a barrier for the, like the last 800 meters, right? So everyone's closing in on the race. You've got Chris Froome, Richie Port and I think Balcom Molina out in the lead, uh, and Froome is being challenged. All of a sudden, the road gets so compressed, the motorcycle has to stop. The three of them collide into the motorcycle. They all go down. Uh, Froome goes down, and the motorcycle behind him runs over his bike. So now his bike is destroyed. Can't ride it, and. Because this particular stage uh, was so compressed, I couldn't be on the moto. So I was actually riding and reporting from a team car so I could see on the video as this was going down. And, uh, and then that's when Froom starts running up the mountain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just to make <laughs> some progress and the team car. As I alluded to before, you know, team car position is so important. But even though the team car was in the lead, they couldn't get through the people. And Froome wasn't about to wait because the competition was going away. But there was also ahead of the team car neutral support, which carries a bunch of bicycles with them. Well, it so happens, you know, so they pull a bike off. Well, the bike doesn't even come close to fitting Froome, and the and the pedals are not compatible with the cleats on his shoes. So he's like, <laughs> you know, he's got these old-fashioned toe-clips strap down pedals on a bike that, you know, it looks like a BMX bike, just tiny, and it's like a gong show. You're like, I cannot believe this is like an international competition and and Froome's on this circus bike. Um, And then, you know, eventually the car gets up to him, he dumps the bike, and then he gets on uh, and then goes on and loses a whole lot of time Ultimately, they neutralized the times in the race at the time of the uh, the time of the incident. Well, you know this this was you know I was in the middle of it watching it all go down. I, I knew all the motorcycle pilots very well because that's my posse, you know, and got the inside story because they were being maligned for interfering with the race. And what had happened was that a spectator jumped in front of them. They had to hammer the brakes. The riders, and they had nowhere to go. The riders, there was no room on the road to get around a motorcycle. That's how congested the road was. And so then they created the problem. And of course, you have to go a certain amount of speed on a motorcycle to keep it from tipping over. Right. And so the bike that was behind Chris froe has a camera pilot on it. You can't just stop in the middle of this crowd because you're going to dump the bike. And so they ran over his bike. And so, you know, it's it like, is. holy smokes, is this really a race? Um, Anyway, that was, that to me was one of the great moments uh, in sports and it, it created a knock on effect to where, you know, nowadays when the, the bikes on the roof, they all have all the right pedals for all the right riders. Cause these bikes don't get used very much right. for obvious reasons. Uh, and they have seat posts, which are, can be adjustable on the fly for the riders. So like everything was modified as a result of that moment, um, but, you know, he went on to win the tour, but maybe the only person in Tour de France history to run towards the finish line <laughs> to, to, <laughs> as part of his way around France.
0: Yeah. All right. The final question I have for you, uh, I hope, is what what's been some of the best advice that you've ever been given as a broadcaster?
1: Yourself. Uh. Don't try to be someone else. be yourself. And uh, that's and that's one that is sounds so, so simple. but it has taken me so long to feel like I can just be myself. And it uncomplicates everything so you can focus on the content. because I think when you start out, it's hard to picture yourself on television, and therefore you just wittingly or not start speaking like someone on TV. And you, I don't know about you, but I hear that, you know, when I listen to certain uh, you know, local news broadcasts or you know, even listening to NPR, right? There's a voice of NPR that's not a normal speaking voice. Right. Um and Interestingly enough, and I'm looking at his poster right now, uh, a guy that has, I think, embodied that more than any other broadcaster is Ira Glass, who is the host of This American Life. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he is obviously not a sportscaster. He's anything but. He's a storyteller. And he did this interview with Terry Gross and they talked about what they thought was important to the whole storytelling process. And it was, he noticed when he watched the news that the when you listen to the news, you tend to you you tend to drown out the lead, someone leading into a quote. And then what captures your attention is the person speaking because they're speaking in a normal voice. That they, they, they're answering a question, they're trying to get their point across, and there's a certain intonation that goes with that that makes it easier to understand. You're just more in tune with that person than the person doing the lead and the tag. And if you ever listen to this American Life and you listen to Ira Glass, whenever he leads in and out of things, it sounds like he's making it up. He's stuttering. He sounds like Jimmy Stewart, right? He just, there's nothing clean about the way he speaks, and it's so much easier to listen to. And that is that's my mantra be yourself and speak in a voice that's human and not made for TV
0: i think you just gave me a little bit of advice for my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cuz i don't i don't get my questions out all uh, you know perfect 100% of the time so that's a good, yeah, well, good no, piece of advice i hope, you advice. Find that
1: liberating. I hope you, yeah and and i i do when i'm reporting on the back of the motorcycle i a real problem when i started i you know i had to say exactly these things and occasionally there's things that need to come out exactly right you know when it comes to you know hard news right you don't want to screw up right. someone's injury you don't want to screw up someone's words you, you know you don't want to misquote but otherwise just get it out like you would in normal conversation right. and not and I, I i started my career in media as a writer and I was constantly trying to speak like I wrote, and that was highly problematic.
0: <laughs> it sounds sounds almost robotic at that point. It does, and
1: and and it's very difficult. I mean, over time you can learn how to write how you speak, but in when you need to be report and be quick, you know, you can't write what exactly what you're going to say down. You right? Just, you can't. People think like, "Do you have a teleprompter?" I'm like, "Does it look like I have a teleprompter on the back <laughs> of I go, are You
0: kidding me, man? <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me and and discovering what you do not only with Alpine but with uh, you know cycling, and, and just your perspective on the industry. It's 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 great talking with you again. I wish, you know, I hope that somehow somewhere in the future we can connect again and work together because I always had so much fun working with you. I
1: had, I had fun catching up again, Don. This is yeah. No, I would. I'm honored. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. So where are we going to see you next? The Tour de France. Uh,
1: Like all things in this era, that's not a certainty. But right now, the Tour de France is still scheduled for its latest back in June. Or no, it's longer ago than that. Uh, They said we're moving the tour from its normal start date, which is the end of June to the third week of July. That's typically its range. Mm -hmm. August 29th, to September 20th are the dates, and you know we keep hearing this and that from the ASO, which is the organizing committee of the Tour de France. They have to obviously defer to what the French government will allow, um, and I know that of late there's a couple of uh, newly um, emerged red zones of COVID that are part of the. Uh, route and so it, it makes it hard for them to say this is exactly how it's going to happen as of the date of when we're talking which is you know mid June so um for right now i am banking on employment literally banking on employment done <laughs> uh for august 29th to september 20th where that route takes us I couldn't tell you, Yeah, but I I am positive. I have a positive
0: vibe about this thing. happening. Yeah. Well, good. Well, whatever it is, uh, I wish you best of luck. Stay safe on the moto. If you're on the moto again and, uh, mm-hmm. and we will, uh, be watching you on TV. Awesome. Man. All right. Thank thanks. So thanks again, Steve. Including me. Yeah. I appreciate it. All right. That was Steve Perino, Alpine ski announcer and cycling reporter for NBC sports. I am really fortunate to have worked with Steve in my time at NBC Sports. He's a really fun and funny guy and has an incredible knack for finding stories to help viewers get to know not only more about the sport, but the intricacies of what goes into the sport, the athletes, the stories, the mechanics. You get the idea. If you want to know more about Steve, give him a follow at Steve Perino on Twitter and look up Steve Perino in a tree on YouTube for some of the creativity he brings to his reporting. And finally, look for Steve and his fellow announcer, Steve Schlanger, on The D-Route, a YouTube series which chronicles the amusing life on the road between those two during the Tour de France. And if you don't have a pen to write all that down, visit the Sports in the Making Facebook and Twitter pages or sportsinthemaking.com. Now be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you catch both previous and upcoming episodes where I talk with people in the sports and sports broadcasting industry who have made an impact on how sports are viewed throughout the world. Episodes are released every other Thursday through the summer. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions for me or my guests, I'd love to share them on a show. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like it, share it, and leave positive reviews on your social media channels. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes, and you can catch up on the previous episodes there as well. I'm your host Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.